Would you please stand with me as we read? We're reading from Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I did eat. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The spirit deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and clothed them. The word of the Lord. Today is Palm Sunday. Next week is Easter Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day that we remember Jesus entering into Jerusalem where the palm branches were laid down and the people shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, because they believed that the king had arrived. They believed that the Messiah was on the ground and coming to be crowned in Jerusalem, from which point he would lead Israel, right, God's people, into a state of uh, where most problems were solved. What they didn't realize was, in fact, that Jesus was entering Jerusalem to head to trial, 
and having gone through trial, would end up in death. Of course, as we think about the trial that Jesus is headed to, as we think about it in this Easter week, it reminds us of the first trial. And Zach had what I thought was a very nifty idea, something I think he did in in seminary, which was to uh, consider the gospel through two trials. There are two cosmic trials in Scripture that define the story and set the, the trajectory for God's people after each event. And so this week we're going to consider the first trial, the first verdict, and next week we'll consider the second trial, which is the trial of Jesus. So what do we learn by considering this first trial? And the question that I would like to pose to you as we consider these trials is, which trial do you live in light of? Or which verdict informs your life? Now, I'll ask it again at the end of uh, today's sermon, and we'll ask it again next week, but I'd like that to be kicking around your head as we proceed. Now, even before we get to the verdict in Genesis 3, we want to consider sin and its effects because they are deep and profound. As the woman decides to partake of the tree that is forbidden in the middle of the garden, and she persuades her husband to do so as well, uh, the world changes. They change. And we see this in three particular ways at the beginning, uh, towards the beginning of our passage. Let's start in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What are we to make of this awareness that Adam and Eve experienced that they were naked? Now, we cannot simply say that Nakedness was the problem, and they were addressing that problem, having become aware of it, because to say that would be to suggest that God had created them in a state of sin, and that wouldn't make any sense. It can't be simply about nakedness. Something more here is being communicated. And so what are they suddenly uh, feeling, that they are suddenly aware of their nakedness? Well, something Uh, significant has happened as they've partaken of the fruit. You see, the creation has now become consumers of the creation, devourers to fill their own hunger, right? So God has created the garden, and he said, Adam and Eve, you're to tend the garden. You're to be my representatives over the earth. There's just one tree that you can't eat of. And as Eve is tempted to move toward that tree, And as she partakes of that tree, what she is saying and deciding in her heart is, I will be filled by the creation itself. Right? The serpent has persuaded her that she will find something in the creation that will uh, satiate her, that will satisfy her in a way that God has not. And so she becomes uh, someone who consumes the creation in ways not prescribed by God in ways that she thinks will fill her up. Now, this, this casts the world into a state of sin. It casts all of us into a state where we have a propensity to devour the creation, which includes one another, in order to be filled up. And imagine now that Eve and Adam both have decided, I will consume the creation in the way that I see fit so that I will be satisfied. Think about how their heart has changed, and now they look upon one another. If you will consume the creation apart from God's instruction for your own benefit, then how do I know you're not going to consume me? 
the relationship changes dramatically. Right? Suddenly they're aware both inside, saying, I know now that there are certain, certain things that are awake in me that are frightening, and I, I would prefer to hide them, but I presume that they're awake inside of you as well, now that we've become those who would devour the creation apart from God's intent. I need something to shield myself because I am suddenly vulnerable in a way I've never been. I need clothes. I need something that will, will begin to hide me, begin to protect me, both prevent you from seeing what's inside of me and give me some notion that I am protected from you. Now, clothes are certainly simply just the beginning of the ways in which we engage in this, right? Hiding, hiding our nakedness, moving away from vulnerability because of the propensity now for all of us to, to consume and to devour and to forge those things that we think will protect us. Uh, recently, I enjoyed watching uh, Doctor Strange, kind of a fun flick, uh, one of the latest releases in the Marvel hero universe. Right? But this character, Stephen Strange, begins as an actual doctor, a surgeon. In fact, one of the preeminent neurosurgeons in the world. He lives in New York City. He handles only the top cases. He's more gifted than everybody, and he does better surgery than everybody, and he has uh, boatloads of money that he spends in all kinds of ways, right? And this is his way of uh, his clothes, not just simply clothes that he wears, but he has formed an image. I am the surgeon that's preeminent. I've worked hard, right? And as a result, this is how I navigate my way through life, you, how I protect myself. It's my identity, my significance. Now, what happens early in the movie is he gets into a bad car crash, and the car crash crushes his hands. Which, of course, you know for a surgeon, your hands are everything. It's your livelihood. And so no longer can he uh, perform surgery, and he, he falls down a, a pit of despair. Uh, who am I? I'm not safe anymore. I'm not strong enough. I'm vulnerable to be consumed and devoured by others, and I don't have any way to make my way in this world. His clothes, right, of his identity had been stripped away and he was left naked and vulnerable and doesn't know what to do. In what ways do you protect yourself? Right? Not only clothes that protect from this idea of nakedness, but ways in which you form an image that you think helps you to navigate the world where you're strong or caring. Right? You're the most helpful person. What ways do you say, oh, goodness, this world is a scary place. There's new danger that's been introduced for Adam and Eve, and suddenly we better sew some fig leaves together. That's the first effect of sin, is the awareness of vulnerability that must be shielded. The second effect of sin is hiding, and we see this in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I find that verse desperately sad. Can you imagine having the opportunity to actually meet with God, to walk with him in the cool of the garden, and then to pass that up, to run and hide? Right? What have they done? Before sin, there would have been no, not even a mental notion of hiding from God. Right? You're, you're uh, created to be in union with him. But suddenly now, there is a preference to, to hide from him, which is to pretend he does not exist. 
Right? My life will be safer. My life will be freer from accountability if I simply can remove myself from his presence. Now, on, from one, on the one hand, what a ridiculous notion. Right? Who here logically would say, yes, we are capable of hiding from God? It's absurd. God is omnipresent. You can't hide from God. And yet, how frequently do you do so? How great is the temptation to go and to remove ourselves, uh, you know, in our perception, to remove ourselves from his presence? No, I won't go and spend time in his word. Yes, I hear the Spirit beckoning me to prayer later. I'm going to stay in a place in which I don't really have to come into his presence, which is very challenging, right? Coming into the presence of God does two things. Number one, it makes your sin, sin, right? When you stand next to your neighbor who's cooking meth and whose life is a mess, right? You say, I'm, I am a pretty good person. But when you come into the presence of God, right, you're, the color of your sin changes. Right? You realize, oh, no, I'm desperately unholy in the presence of holiness. So there's shame and guilt and awareness of sin, but there's also, uh, in coming into the presence of God, you know that he is your loving father. And a loving father disciplines his children. And so to be in a place of sin and have the tendency to hide, God, come, and you know, I don't want that discipline. I'm not sure what it's going to be, and I don't want to suffer it, so I would just prefer to go on pretending that I can hide from God. We see this, Zach's great story about Asher, right? The child who cuts their hair and realizing what they've done flees to the recesses of the house, right? When you come, when dad comes home and, it's, uh, and they've been told, you wait until your father gets home and you come in and you yell their name and you hear the running, right? Into the farthest reaches uh, away from you, right? To pretend that I would prefer to pretend that you don't exist rather than to face you and to know my shame and guilt and to, to own it, right? To hide. And hiding is only, you know, if hiding is pretending that God doesn't exist, it is only the, the foreshadowing of the point in which we will wish he doesn't exist so much that we will crucify him. Better to live apart from God in the flesh than to actually be in the presence of holiness and held accountable. In what ways do you hide? In what ways do you avoid coming into the presence of God? In what ways would he beckon to you this morning to be present with him and you, even leaving here today, having tasted of, of that notion of invitation, you go home and you uh, jump online. You shop. Right? You go out into the yard. Right? Anything but to actually sit down and to be present uh, in the midst of God's holiness. That's the second effect of sin, our propensity to hide. The third effect of sin occurs in verse 11. God in his grace comes to man anyway and asks him to own his sin. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Right? What, a, what a gracious offering. God's fully aware of what's happened and he says, okay, have you done this? Let's own it. And the first words out of the man's mouth are what? The woman. And then God poses the same offer to the woman. And the first words out of the woman's mouth are what? The serpent. Neither one will own their sin. 
Neither one will take responsibility. Instead, my first move is going to be to cast blame. God, if you only knew the whole story here, if you understood how uh, I've been tempted by my wife or I've been tempted by the serpent, then you really won't look at me so harshly. You have to understand the context here. We shift the blame and we have contempt for others in the midst of our sin, right? What is, what is Adam? We're just throwing each other under the bus, right? Rather than actually own their sin and face uh, accountability before God, which would have been the most healthy thing to do, right? Your loving father is there and is, you know, let, let's move forward. And instead, they continue to avoid actually doing business with God uh, in light of what they've done. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but um, I think uh, this is one of the most, um, I mean, to have an ancient text so astutely describe the human condition in the matter of a few verses uh, screams uh, divinity, right? What a profound, what better summary of the human condition that the problem with humanity is that uh, we live by uh, clothing ourselves an image to protect ourselves in this new vulnerability in a world exposed to sin. We hide ourselves from God, thinking that we can avoid him. And thirdly, that we blame others and have contempt for each other because we would rather see one another consumed than allow ourselves to be consumed or, you know, allow ourselves to be held responsible. It's stunning. The world had changed. We had cast the world into a new place, right? Our first parents in such a desperately sad state in which we live uh, as consumers ultimately of one another. Well, God enters into this and now we can consider uh, his, his verdict, right? The trial, so to speak, that actually occurs. Of course, guilt is quite readily established, but what is, this, uh, what is the verdict going to look like? God begins uh, with the serpent, Interestingly, more not so interesting in that he starts with the serpent, but of what he says to the serpent, which if you look with me at uh, 14, verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what happens? There's ongoing enmity. There will be hatred and war between the children of the woman and the children of the serpent. Ultimately, the children of the woman will crush the serpent. Right? And of course, we'll see that ultimately in Christ. But he also sentences the sermon to go on his belly and to eat the dust of the earth all the days of his life. Now, you'll often see people say, hmm, here we go. This is nothing but... Uh, you know, why the giraffe's neck is long or why the elephant's trunk has, is long. You have nothing but an ancient story trying to explain why the snake or serpent doesn't have legs. And it misses the beauty. It misses the depth of what is being communicated here. Because what has the serpent tempted Eve with? The serpent went to Eve and said, listen, you don't need to be filled up by the creator. You can be filled up by the creation consume the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden and you will be made like him. The serpent tempted Eve to consume the creation. 
How does God sentence the serpent? You will eat the creation all the days of your life. The one being who is outside of the material universe is sentenced to consume the material in the same way that he tempted Eve. That is his sentence until God brings that story to conclusion. It's, a, it's an astonishing punishment. It's also one that afflicts us. You know, As we are also dust, the serpent consumes uh, everything that he can, including us, right? that he prowls about for us. But God punishes him with the very thing that he tempted Eve. Now uh, God moves on to the woman. And in verse 16 says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So for the woman, which many of you know all too well, your pain in childbirth will be greatly increased. I am sorry for that. And uh, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, this is a difficult verse to interpret. It is often contested, but I think at least on the playing field is this. You, um, you will have uh, the, the desire, actually the word desire there kind of is the idea of consuming, right? Uh, I think that King James may say lust, but not in a, a, um, not in a, a physical sense, but more in an uh, a overwhelming desire sense. And that the husband will rule over you suggests a bit of distance um, in the sense that uh, the, the, the wife will have this longing to, to be near to her husband and to um, almost to uh, consume him. And the husband will, will desire a distance and say, no, that's not, that's not, I don't have that same desire. And as a result, there's going to be frustration. So I'll come back to that in just a minute. Let's consider the man. Uh, to Adam he said in verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, uh, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All right, for the man, in pain you shall eat of it. Uh, of the ground, by the sweat of your brow. Your, in other words, your work is going to be afflicted, right? Why do you want to take a baseball bat to the copier machine? Because of the fall, right? Everything is arduous. There's a certain futility now introduced where God originally created things that the garden was very easy to tend and gave up produce, right? That, that world, that story is over. Now we live in a world in which everything is frustrated and breaking down and only by this arduous sweat of our brow do we, do we eat of the land. Now, what's going on for the woman and for the man in terms of these punishments? Right? I think one thing, at least, that's going on, and a very important thing that's going on, is the notion of what God is frustrating in his punishment. Now, I, speaking in generalities to some extent, right? Um, it's certainly in the ancient world, where does a woman find her identity? She finds it through bearing children, right, having a large family, and through being married, right, through her husband. Now, I think that's significantly true today, too. Right? Now, I'm not saying that as a woman you can't find identity in work, and that may be your story or in something else, or you don't have identity without a husband or kids. I'm saying in general, in the ancient world, right, that is, that is your identity. That is what you will pursue for significance 
and to know that you have a part in this world. It's also what you pursue for uh, protection. Think of the ways in which the women of the Old Testament who could not bear children were either, um, they thought that they were cursed by God, that they were uh, mocked by other women in the biblical story. Right? This is a, it's a way to clothe yourself in the ancient world. God says, I'm going to frustrate that. I'm going to give you so much pain in, every, in the birth of every child that you remember that this is not something that you can find life in. And I'm going to frustrate the very relationship you have with your husband. Right? I'm going to put a degree of tension between the two of you that will also help you to remember that you can't find life there. He's not the one you should worship. And for the man... Right? Where is his significance? Right? Again, speaking generalities today, but undoubtedly in the ancient world, it's in work and what you produce, right? and the labors that you engage in, and how much you can provide for your family. Right? In some ways, some things haven't changed that much. And to the man, he says, you know what? That's not going to be easy anymore. I'm going to frustrate you in the midst of that pursuit. So do you see the grace in God's punishment? Right? As, as the first parents have chosen to consume the creation, outside of the will of the creator, they have chosen the creation over the creator. And they've been cast into a state which is incredibly despairing. It's a state in which they must protect each other from, protect themselves from one another, a state in which they desire to hide from God, and a state in which they would blame one another, right, and have contempt for one another as long as it meant they don't have to own their sin. God says, okay, the story is moving in a certain direction and I'm going, you need to be punished. But his punishment is such grace and love. I'm going to give you, woman, enough frustration in bearing children, enough frustration with your husband that you won't lean on that so hard. And I'm going to give you, man, enough frustration in your work that you won't lean on that so hard. And it's in your very frustration that you will turn to me. And if that fails, right, if it doesn't communicate effectively to you, then remember that I'm also going to return you to the dust. And dust, right, that you will die, makes every pursuit apart from me a pursuit of futility if it is not informed by me. It's astounding grace, astounding wisdom, and fatherly care in the punishment of our first parents that they would be limited in the direction that they will go, right? We're only... We're only uh, Sorry, I made that noise. Uh, seven chapters uh, or so outside of Babel, right? Mankind will say, we can, the men will gather and we can build. We don't need God. And God, again, will frustrate that so that mankind will not be able to go in these directions apart from him. Uh, this is the punishment that he lays down for the good, for the good of his people, Right? And so what are we supposed to make of this trial and understand out of it? You know, uh, in the story of Dr. Strange, Stephen Strange, his hands are crushed. He can't be a surgeon anymore. And you see him go into this despair, this sort of hiding. And Christine is his girlfriend and tries to reach out to him and encourage him in the midst of healing and is sacrificing for him. And he has nothing but contempt for her, right, in terms of blaming others. He says, you know, you just want a sob story. You need someone to help to feel important. That's all, the only reason you're here. Right? He has enormous contempt for himself now that he can't be who he was. And he has contempt for her because she's just frustrating him and wants to blame someone. And so he ends up alone and he goes off to pursue mysticism in uh, Kathmandu. And he meets 
this, you know, learns these mystical arts and becomes powerful and becomes like, right, the this, this superhero. But it gets to a certain point in the story where the whole reason he's pursued the mystical arts is to heal his hands. In other words, he simply wants to go back to who he was. He wants to be the surgeon reestablished. He wants that identity reforged. And uh, the ancient one, right, the, the big supreme kind of mystical person, says, you know, you just, you don't get it, Stephen. Uh, you, you um, being a surgeon is not what you're intended to be. He's like, I was, I, and Stephen says, I was a great surgeon. Right? I want to go, go back to this. And uh, he, he said, I was, I was, I was fearless. And uh, the ancient one says, no, you were filled with fear and anger. Uh, and he goes, but that's what made me a good surgeon. And she goes, no, it's what prevented you from being a great surgeon. That you, uh, you've missed the larger point, Stephen, which is that this is not all about you. And so Stephen stands at that place where he now has the ability to simply heal his hands and go back to his former image. Or he can move forward as the hero of this story and save the world from uh, the bid the forces of darkness. And of course, he, he chooses to move forward uh, to save the forces of darkness. Now, there's a, there's a beautiful picture in that, in that uh, Stephen chooses to sacrifice, right, that old image and to move forward in a direction of sacrifice to benefit others, right? A strong echo of the gospel, of our calling, right? To not return to that image, but to move forward in a new way. But the really disappointing part, which is the disappointing part of all the hero stories of which they just, are they not coming out one after another in the box office? Is this notion that you, uh, it's inside you to save yourself, right? So Stephen gets to the point and that the decisive moment for Dr. Strange is uh, all you have to do is make a decision. You just have to flip the switch and you'll be the hero that saves the world. You just have to decide not to be selfish anymore and we'll be saved. And I, I personally, I'm so tired of that story. And I'm so tired of being in a culture that's satisfied with that story. How many times do we have to look upon history and look upon our own hearts to realize that we do not change simply by flipping a switch? That that kind of real change is beyond our power, right? Cataclysm after cataclysm historically and failure after failure in your own life should demonstrate to all of us, should communicate that we don't have that ability, that we are subject to the status that is achieved in the fall unless someone should remedy it outside of ourselves. We need a new trial. We need, though, someone to stand in that trial for us because we can't stand in it ourselves. The sentence will always be the same because what? We clothe ourselves and hide. We hide from God and we blame each other and have contempt for each other. And we're stuck there unless someone can stand in our place and a new verdict can be rendered. And to help you anticipate what's going to happen next week, right? Think for a moment. The condition of our first parents are one in which they must clothe themselves and the Son of Man will surrender his clothes and hang naked. The condition of our first parents is that they must hide from God. And Jesus puts himself blatantly in the open of God's full wrath. And our first parents 
would have the propensity to blame one another, that they might save themselves. And Jesus will hang, and when he is the sole person that has the right to blame anyone, he hangs there and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it is that trial and the verdict that is rendered after it that sets us free. But back to the question that we started with. What verdict do you live in light of? Does your life have more to do with uh, carrying some kind of image so that you'll be perceived in a certain way, hiding from God, and blaming others? Or does your life communicate that you live in the verdict of having been set free? We'll examine that trial next week, and we'll take up uh, the verdict and its effects. But even now, you can ask the question, And which verdict do you live in light of? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, your compassion to us that even when we would consume the creation for our own benefit and against your will, you have been kind to us. And even your punishment is grace. For we would run to aspects of the creation that we would think fill us up only to be disappointed. And you frustrate us in those very endeavors. And your frustration is the sweetness of kindness that we would be awakened. So would you wake us up and help us to see the ways in which we clothe ourselves in images that we hide from you and that we blame and have contempt for one another that we might uh, be set free to live in such ways as utter bondage. Would you help us to know that we have been set free in Christ? Help us to think deeply of what that is and help us to understand in the power of your spirit what it is to live that out. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.